today's reading is from Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. You'll find that on page 44 of the Church Bibles. Page 44. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. That is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask, I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Well, as you may have guessed, and as uh, Mick has signalled earlier, uh, we have, in the last week of our series um, in Genesis, God is faithful, and we've seen a week on week uh, that God is, is faithful. He keeps his promises, he provides, he sustains, uh, in spite of our sin and our unfaithfulness uh, and our unreliability. Uh, I hope you've seen again and again what an amazing God we have. Uh, so I'm going to pray and ask him uh, to bless our final uh, time in Genesis this morning. Will you pray with me? Father God, uh, we thank you so much uh, for your word. We thank you that we have been reminded again and again of your goodness in this book of Genesis. Please uh, do that again this morning. Uh, help us to uh, take hold of your promises, take hold of your grace and mercy to us in Jesus, that we would grow in our love and devotion to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you know, uh, our senior minister, Pete Stedman, has recently returned from a mission trip uh, to Africa. He was uh, training pastors in Zimbabwe, and there's uh, the lecture going on uh, with the pastors there. And, and one of the things that often happens when uh, people uh, return from Africa is they, they bring back stories of how the church there is full of life and energy and passion and devotion. And, and so by comparison, the church here in the West, the church here in Sydney in the hills can seem a little bit lethargic and snoozy, if you like. Um, but here's the thing about that. Uh, when we hear that, um, we often hear it uh, like we hear about global warming or the economy. Uh, it feels very abstract and removed from our lives. And so we might say, well, yes, that is an issue and someone should really do something about that. But we, we don't really know how to, to land that. So, so let's try and land it this morning. Let's kind of uh, put some flesh on the bones of that. Well, what, what does it look like for the church to perhaps seem a little bit lethargic? I, I think one of the areas, one of the struggles for us is that we have too many coffee cup verses. Uh, you know coffee cup verses? They 
uh, fit neatly on a coffee cup. There, my cup overflows with blessing as you got your cup of coffee uh, in the morning. Um, but but more, more seriously, uh, it could be a verse uh, like the one out of Philippians 4, which says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Or, or the one out of Romans 8 that says, uh, we know that God works for the good of those who love him in all things. See, they're neat Easy verses, they fit on a coffee cup, they're easy to remember, easy to throw into a conversation. But but the danger is that we don't really live them, we don't really wrestle with them. And so then they just stay coffee cup verses. And if they stay coffee cup verses, when doubts and questions come in our faith, when suffering and hard times confront us, or when we've got to make a really big and difficult decision for Jesus, if all we've got a coffee, coffee cup verses, then there's nothing to sustain us, nothing to guide us and transform us. Now, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, could be like that. Uh, it says there, Joseph says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it to, for good. It, it's a brilliant verse. It, it's neat and easy to remember. But it absolutely cannot be a coffee cup verse for Joseph. No, Genesis 50, as we just uh, read before, comes at the end of the book of Genesis. Uh, The family are back together. They've gone from famine in Canaan to plenty in Egypt. Uh, Joseph has had the joy of placing his sons on his father Jacob's knee. He's reunited with his father. And then Jacob dies. And then we saw that the brothers are still afraid that Joseph might take revenge on, he, on them. So, so they make up this story. They lie about how what the Jacob had said, don't take revenge on them, forgive them. Uh, and when Joseph gets the news, look at the end of verse 17. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. He weeps because he's already welcomed them and included them and blessed them, yet they still don't trust him. And verse 18, they come and throw themselves at his feet, not as brothers, but as slaves. And so then he speaks that word, verse 20. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. It's brilliant. But it can't be a coffee cup verse because he has lived that. There is skin on the bones for Joseph of that verse. Let me remind you just how dysfunctional this family was leading into this chapter. Genesis 37 that we looked at last week, Jacob uh, had Joseph as his favorite son because he was uh, his youngest son born to his favorite wife uh, and he favored him above all and the brothers were jealous. And then he gave him that ornate coat, uh, which in the ancient world a coat isn't just a coat. Uh, An ornate long coat is a a symbol, a sign that he intends to give a double blessing, a double inheritance to Joseph. Imagine what that would have been like for the brothers, for Joseph sort of parading around in that verse, rubbing it in. I've got the double blessing. And then he came with those dreams. Remember those dreams? And he came and said, oh, guess what? I had a dream. And in the dreams, you all bow down to me. And surprisingly, they got jealous and angry until they betrayed him and sold him into slavery in Egypt. And then they went back to their father, Jacob, and they said, oh, he got killed by a wild animal. They lied. And Jacob would know no comfort in his grief. So Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, cannot be a coffee cup verse. There is skin in the game for Joseph. The whole, you intended to harm me, God intended for good, that meant, that carried with it years and years of pain and suffering and imprisonment. He lived those verses. There was flesh on the bones for them. And so when he says... You intended to harm me, but God intended for good. It's a verse of 
healing. So then verse 21, he can say, so then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. See, deep, real reconciliation comes to the family as he speaks those words. They can flourish again as a family. And friends, that is what we want, isn't it? That coffee cup verses become life verses. Verses that heal us and transform us and guide us and sustain us. We live them, we know them. So how did Joseph's family get there? How do we get to that point? Well, three steps today. Three steps today. First of all, the sun and the frost breaks us open. Uh, Come back to Genesis chapter 42 with me. We'll pick it up a little earlier in the story. Genesis 42. So it's around maybe something like 10 years after they sold their brother Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Uh, There is a famine in Canaan. Verse 1. When Jacob, their father, learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard there is grain in Egypt, so go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Why is he afraid? Is there a, perhaps a sneaking suspicion that his other sons had been involved in the disappearance of Joseph? Or maybe it's just that he doesn't want to lose another young son again. Whichever way it is, years and years after Joseph's disappearance, he is still haunted by the loss of his son. And so now these vile, deceptive brothers walk headlong into the arms of the brother that they betrayed in Egypt. But he's no longer weak and vulnerable. He is strong and powerful. So what do you think Joseph will do? Will he take revenge? But then there'll be no reconciliation. Will he just welcome them and say it doesn't matter, but then there's no healing and forgiveness? What would you do? That person who wronged you, who hurt you, who lied about you, what would you like to say to them, do to them? You know when you've had that conversation, you've played it over in your mind when you meet them and you get to kind of have it out. How have you thought it would play out? What have you thought you'd say to them? Well, look at what Joseph does. Verse 6. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You've come here to see where our land is unprotected. You could totally understand if Joseph had said to them, Remember that dream I had and I said you'd bow down to me and you said never? Well, (laughs) look what's happening now. But he keeps his identity a secret. And what does he do? Well, first glance, it looks like straight, simple, naked revenge. He calls them spies, he condemns them as spies, and has them locked up in prison. But if it was just simple revenge, then he could have left them to rot in prison, or he could have sold them into slavery, just like they'd done to him. But as we read on in these chapters, we see Joseph weeping over his brothers. And he blesses them as well. He sends them back to Canaan, not just with sacks full of grain, but with all the money that they'd come and brought with them to pay for it. 
So it's not simple revenge, but nor is it just, it's okay, don't worry about it. And as I read these chapters of Genesis for the first few times, I was asking, what is Joseph doing? Why is he switching between blessing and harshness and kindness and discipline? Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Genesis, explains it so helpfully. He says that Joseph's actions were the alternating sun and frost that broke them open to God. Do you get the picture? As you heat and freeze something, Heat and freeze, cold and warmth, you stress it, you put it under pressure until it cracks, until it breaks. And that is what Joseph is doing here in these chapters with his brothers. He shows them kindness and threats, love and truth, blessing and discipline, sun and frost to crack them open, to break them open. See, if Joseph had just destroyed them, then there could be no reconciliation. But if he just welcomed them back, then there was no forgiveness No healing. So have a look at uh, what happens. Genesis 42, verse 21. He's thrown them uh, in prison for being spies. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That is why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account for his blood. They'd probably never spoken about what they did to Joseph all those years before. Tried to cover it up, but the guilt was always there. And now as Joseph applies the sun and frost, begins to stress and crack them open, they begin to have to deal with their guilt, what they did to Joseph. See, their father Jacob had effectively ruined their family by shining the sun on only one son, Joseph, and giving frost to all the other brothers. But here, now, Joseph begins to heal his family as he brings sun and frost, truth and love, discipline and blessing. That's what we need in our relationships, isn't it? Someone wrongs you, hurts you. It doesn't help if people just say, well, you just need to forgive them. But nor does it help if we just take revenge and hold a grudge. I remember meeting with a couple, a married couple, uh, some years ago now, and they we'll call them Paul and Wendy. Their marriage had been in trouble for about 10 years. Paul was emotionally distant and neglectful at home, and Wendy was unforgiving in her demands and her expectations upon him. And some well-meaning people had given them some terrible advice. They said to Wendy, look, you just need to forgive him. That's your role as a wife. Just forgive him every time. And they said to Paul, well, you just need to try and do a little better. Terrible advice. And so it brewed away, it brewed away until it reached a crisis point. And Wendy was this close to walking out. And Paul's response was, yeah, whatever. And you know what brought healing in their marriage? It was truth and love, sun and frost. Paul got that wake-up call, that shot in the arm that said, I need to take things seriously. I need to start serving instead of being selfish. And Wendy began to soften and be more forgiving in her expectations. That's what we need in our relationships, isn't it? Truth and love, sun and frost. But it's really hard, right? Really hard. And it was hard for Joseph too. Remember the whole brothers selling you into slavery thing? 
He was flesh and blood like us. We mustn't think that just because he was in the Bible, it was somehow easy for him. It was hard for him. And at this point in the story, it is still unclear as to how it will play out, what Joseph's end game is, whether this family can ever be reconciled until this brilliant moment where it all changes. It's the Hollywood moments and the grace of God, if you're following in the outline. So come over to Genesis 44 with me, this amazing moment. The brothers went back to Canaan with plenty of grain. They didn't starve to death. But then the grain ran out, and so they have to return to Egypt. And they find uh, Joseph again welcoming and generous. And this time they bring, despite Jacob's concerns, they bring the youngest son, Benjamin, with them. And Joseph welcomes them, but then he sets them up. He arranges for a silver cup to be hidden in the bags of the youngest son, Benjamin. And as they leave for Canaan, he springs the trap. The cup is discovered. It is a terrible crime to steal from the second most powerful man in Egypt. So they are dragged back to Egypt and thrown before Joseph. Verse 14 of Genesis 44. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find out things by divination? What can we say, my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now, my Lord, slaves. We ourselves and the one who is found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who is found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. This is the key moment. Joseph puts them in almost the same situation as they'd been all those years before. They can release themselves by sacrificing the younger brother. They can bless themselves, look after themselves by dumping, betraying on the younger brother, which is exactly what they had done to Joseph all those years before. But then Judah steps forward. Judah, who'd been the ringleader of the time when they betrayed Joseph and sold him into slavery, and he speaks this long speech which reaches its climax at verse 33. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. You see what he's done? Let me, Judah, remain in place of the boy, Benjamin. Let me be his substitute. Let me take his place. And then chapter 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still a living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. It's an amazing moment as he sees Judah substitute himself. All the pain and grief of years and years just floods forth and crying can be heard outside. But as much as it's a brilliant moment, if the story stops there, if our story stops there, it is no more than a Hollywood moment. You know Hollywood moments? It's that moment in the movie that moves you, that grips you. If you're into romantic comedies, it might be the time when they're standing in an airport or a lounge room and that speech is given. You know, I'm just a guy standing in front of a girl asking her if she'll be with me. Or that you had me at hello scene. 
It's that key moment. Now, if you like, if you're not into romantic comedies and you're more into uh, dramatic epic sagas, then it might be that scene in The Lord of the Rings, the first movie, where Boromir sacrifices his life defending others, defending the defenseless hobbits, and he dies a hero's death. It's that Hollywood moment. It moves you. You want to stand up and cheer, or you might even cry. Now, if you're a guy, you didn't cry, you just had some dust in your eye, and that's fine, we all know. Uh, it's that Hollywood moment. It's powerful. But then it fades. Uh, a few days later, you're not changed. Because it's just a movie, right? It's just a Hollywood moment. And if our story stopped here, then that's what would have happened with Joseph. It would have just been a Hollywood moment. Just He was moved to tears. But what happens next is the key. Look what he says, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Do you see the difference? Have a look again at verse 5. Now, do not be distressed and do not be angry for your, with yourselves for selling me here. Why not? Ah, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Do you see the difference? Joseph can see the grace of God in what has happened. He can see the work of God in what has happened. That gives him the power to forgive. That turns it from a Hollywood moment into a transforming moment. It opens up his heart. It transforms his family. Do you see why coffee cup verses are no good to us? We need to see the flesh on the bones. We need to see the depths of God's power and goodness. That is what makes a difference in our lives. That is what will make a difference in your life. So let me show you an example as we finish. Galatians 2.20. The Apostle Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He says, I live a different life. He was once a persecutor of the church and then he became a servant and a missionary. He writes elsewhere that his life was poured out like a sacrifice for others. How does someone change like that? Second half of the verse. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, he can see the grace of God at work in his life. He says that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. Is that real for you? Is that real for you? Maximilian Colby was a Catholic priest living in Poland uh, during the Second World War. And, and like many others, he was gathered up and thrown into the concentration camps. He was in Auschwitz. One day, there'd been an incident in the camp, some trouble, and the commandant ordered that 10 prisoners would be selected at random and executed as a warning and a lesson to all the other prisoners. A Polish man, a, a Jewish man, um, was brought forward. His name was Francis, and he was included amongst the ten. As they threw him forward, he fell to his knees and weeping and crying and said, my wife, my kids, what will become of them? Well, Maximilian Colby didn't have a wife, didn't have any kids, so he stepped forward and he said, excuse me, can I take this man's place, please? Well, that appealed to the perverse sense of humor of the commandant, so he agreed, but they decided it wouldn't just be a normal execution. No, no, these men would need to suffer. 
They put the ten men in a box and closed and locked the lid and left them there to, to freeze in the cold, to sweat in the heat, to lie in their own filth until they starved to death. But Maximilian Kolbe ministered to those men in such a way that they lasted and lasted and lasted. And eventually the Nazis got sick of waiting and they dragged the men out of the box and executed them. Francis survived Auschwitz. He was reunited with his wife and kids. They emigrated to Australia. He enjoyed another 40 years of life. He got to put his grandkids on his knee. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Amazing story of love and sacrifice. But you know, for us, it's just a Hollywood moment, isn't it? It moves us. It's powerful. But we don't get it. We don't appreciate it the way Francis did. Because we know that Colby didn't die for us. Francis knew that Colby died in his place. Colby died so that Francis could live. If Colby hadn't stepped forward, then Francis would never have lived. Francis knew personally the sacrifice that Colby had made for him. And that is the key question for you. Jesus' death on the cross, is it just a Hollywood moment or has it changed your life? I see all this all the time. People come to church and they have a Hollywood moment. They're moved, they're excited, they're interested, but then it fades. It's just a Hollywood moment. And other people come and they are changed by Jesus. They love him, they serve him. And what's the difference? Well, it's just like Joseph, isn't it? Can you see the grace of God for you in Jesus' death on the cross? Can you say with the Apostle Paul that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me? Religion and good intentions will not change you. Religion says, if you follow the rules, you can change. Good intentions say, if I try hard enough, I can change. But that will only lead to pride or despair. Pride, if you do well, look what I did. Despair, if you fail, look what I can't do. But when you see that God loves you freely, that in spite of your sin and your rebellion against God, your ignoring of God, Jesus loved you and gave himself for you, then you are transformed. Then you have power to forgive, compassion for others, joy in knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you are free to serve others. Friends, may God, by his Spirit, give us eyes to see that, to see that Jesus loved you and gave himself for you. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and God, we thank you for your word and how you have taught us and encouraged us over this term, reminded us again and again of your faithfulness. Lord, please protect us from coffee cup verses and Hollywood moments. Please, by your spirit, enable us to live with and wrestle and put flesh on the bones of your word that we would know deeply your power and goodness for us. That we, like the Apostle Paul, would say with every fiber of our being, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.